Ahoy authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 121 of The Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about structure for character-driven or literary stories. I'm Leslie Watts, here with certified StoryGrid editor, Rochelle Ramirez. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. As you know, the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukral from the Author Marketing Club. Jim just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. We all know that happy books, that we all know that books with more high quality reviews sell more copies. Happybookreviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make your book happy with reviews. Check out the options at www.happybookreviews.com because nobody likes a sad book. You can make your book happy with reviews. I love that. (laughs) I do too. It makes me happy. (laughs) Welcome, Rochelle. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So Rochelle is one of my, another StoryGrid, certified StoryGrid editor friends. Um, She has edited award-winning fiction and assisted memoir writers in dramatizing their stories for the page. So she's the author also of the forthcoming novel, White Girl, Black Sheep, and is currently working on a story grid guide to memoirs of a geisha. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. So if readers or listeners, I should say, and readers want to find out more about you, where can they go? Then go to RochelleRamirez.com. Okay, and that's Rochelle spelled R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E. R-A-M-I-R-E-Z dot com. And of course, we'll have that address in the show notes so you can find her there easily too. So Rochelle, did you happen to bring a quote with you? Well, it's funny you should ask because I did. I found something from Lisa Crone in a book that I really like called Wired for Story because I'm both studied psychology and story sort of at the same time. So this book was like, oh, wow. So anyway, um, so this is from Lisa Crone. And it says, since serious literature is less prone to big events than commercial fiction is, it is actually more in need of a well-constructed plot than anything Jackie Collins ever dreamed of. In literary fiction, the plot must be far more layered, intricate, and finely woven in order to illuminate subtler and more nuanced themes. Character-driven novels rely a lot less on sinking ships, falling meteors, and tidal waves, and a lot more on missed gesture, a quick nod, a moment's hesitation, which in the hands of a great writer can feel more earth-shattering than a nine-point earthquake. But to make no mistake, Literary fiction still revolves around an escalating series of challenges that the protagonist must brave because no matter how keenly honed the protagonist, he still has some, he still has to want something real bad. Oh, yeah. Real bad. Real bad. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) This is such a great quote. I'm so glad you found this because... 
you know, a, a lot of, you know, what we call literary fiction or that's more, you know, that people will say it's character driven stories that they don't always create, you know, structure and the adding the events that will make it, well, that will pull us forward in the same way as you can as she says, a Jackie Collins novel. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's still not the, exa- not the example I would have used. But... Oh, no. <laughs> but that these, yeah, these more that that stories where the global story focuses on the protagonist's internal journey still right. have to have external events that are driving their feelings and their reactions and, right. and all of that. Right. I love Dram- it. Dramatizing the internal events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Today's submission is How I Stumbled into the Golden Cage. It's a short story by Jose Arroyo, and it's about 15,000 words. The author calls this unmagical realism, and Rochelle and I will weigh in on what we think the genre is during our discussion. Some time ago, I mentioned that I wanted to find some people with great voices who could help out with reading the submissions because I wanted them to sound a little more polished, a little more professional than they than happens in the midst of our discussions where we're really focusing on getting the essence of what we want to say into the podcast recording. So we've rounded up a a couple of friends so far to help us with this. And so we're running the experiment right now. And for today's submission, we have C. Stephen Manley, who you might remember from episode 118, because he joined me for that. And we talked about genre and story and had a great time with that. Well, you also might remember that he has a great voice and a podcast of his own. And so he has agreed to do a couple of episodes for us for to read the submissions. And this is the first one. So without further ado, see Stephen Manley reading How I Stumbled into the Golden Cage. How I Stumbled into the Golden Cage by Jose Arroyo. One. Six months into the layoff, hair grew on my face like wild grass as I walked around the shack in my butt huggers. The unemployment check and the occasional side job covered my overhead, which I always tried to keep low. A handful of bills, rent, child support, and marijuana maintenance. The cupboards were replete with top ramen lazy man soups, and there was plenty of bologna in the fridge. I'd heard of people who, having nowhere to go on the daily, felt useless and without purpose. They didn't know what the hell to do with themselves, i.e. how to make use of their downtime. And so they fell into depression, claiming they needed structure and routine in their lives to be able to function. For me, being laid off with pay was like hitting the lottery. After eight years in the trade, the gods of air conditioning finally saw it fit to grant me a sabbatical. It's as if they were trying to tell me, Your dream has come true. You are free to disappear now, shovel in hand into the forest of self to see what you might dig up. I had but two major obligations. Pay the child support and fill out the unemployment questionnaire every other week. 
The unemployment questionnaire asks stupid questions like, have you looked for work recently? Yes, I'd lie. Checking the indicated box before signing, dating, and mailing it off. As for the child support, I had to drag my ass to the local Walmart to use their MoneyGram setup since my baby's mama stopped accepting my personal checks. She had just moved to that one-horse town with her new man and our kids, and already she was deep in the red with the local bank for constantly overdrawing and flat-out refusing to pay them back. The bi-weekly procedure was hell. Standing in that line in what I came to call an unnecessary social situation almost took me over the edge every time. Every once in a while I did side work, which put a little extra tax-free cash in my pocket, but only if the juice was worth the squeeze. I didn't fuck with nickel and dime jobs. 2. I came to the realization that if I wanted to become a writer, I had to develop better writing habits that went beyond just scribbling random phrases on the palm of my left hand, or on pieces of torn cardboard, or on the back of an old Home Depot receipt I had saved in my wallet. The top drawer of my desk was stuffed with pieces of scratch paper, and one day, while walking the floor, it occurred to me that I might be able to develop the ideas I'd scribbled thereon. Maybe, if I put my mind to it, I could scrounge up a little story with the fragments. I set myself a goal of 2,000 words per day, but initially only managed to type around 40. Still, I typed on. I wrote the word self-discipline with a sharpie marker above the screen of my laptop and laid down a couple of rules for myself. 1. Don't allow yourself to be distracted by insignificant trivialities. The only acceptable exceptions are sending the child support and filling out the unemployment form, both on a bi-weekly basis. 2. Never answer the phone or watch porn during writing hours, between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. It didn't take me long to break the no porn rule. The phone rule was easier to stick to. I was on the mobile pay-as-you-go plan, so I had to be very selective about who I chose to waste my minutes on. Mostly, I would just ignore the fucker or put it on silent mode. 3. One day, however, I forgot to put the phone to sleep, and it rang and rang incessantly on the nightstand. I answered, Yes. Paisa, it's me, Manalo. Also known as the Facebook poet, Manalo, who liked to wear a blue scarf in the manner of the Europeans, even if it was 90 degrees out, was the ringleader of an emerging Southern California literary movement. Actually, it was more like a support group, a kind of Poets Anonymous, if you will, whose aim, under his fearless leadership, was to provide emotional support to a certain crew of scribblers should they hit a little turbulence on their journey. The spontaneous poetry he posted on his Facebook page always drew positive comments and countless likes from his readers, for he was the kind of poet that liked to take risks in his poetry. He liked to misspell dude, for instance. Instead of spelling it D-U-D-E like the rest of us, he spelled it D-O-O-D, thus inventing a new way of laying it down which, according to his fellow anonymous poets, was groundbreaking. And when he spoke it, he somehow made it sound just like that. What's up, man? Are you in jail or something? Need someone to post bail? Nah, dude. I got some 411 you might be interested in. A hot job lead. What you got? I found a roach in the ashtray on the kitchen table. I fired it up and smoked it until it burned the tips of my thumb and index finger. A little side job action? This ain't no side job essay. This is a golden opportunity, but I can't just give it to you, understand? It's gonna cost you. He just wrapped up his Southern California Backseat Lovers Tour, which he'd embarked on to promote his latest self-published collection, Poems and Prose for Backseat Lovers. Basically, he showed up uninvited to open mics and slam poetry venues across SoCal, where after checking in on Facebook, he set up camp in a corner and peddled signed copies of his Libro for 10 bucks a pop. 
When the MCs read his name from the sign-up sheet, he stepped to the podium and, playing it safe, read the same two poems every time. The coffeehouse crowds ate it up, and he soon had them eating from the palm of his hand. As he stepped off the stage, his Facebook page became inundated with friend requests, and when he walked out the door at the end of the night, it was always with one or two coffeehouse bitches in tow. All his antics aside, the writing itself was not bad, and his collection was pretty good, though it could have been golden, in my humble opinion, had he taken an axe to it. What do you need, Manny? Why don't you get right to it? A 20 spot, man. I need to take the edge off. Manalo, I'm running out of minutes here, and you want me to front you a dove? You and I are on the same fucking boat, amigo, barely keeping our heads above water. All right, man, but you owe me. My cousin works in an aluminum recycling plant in Pomona. Word on the street is they're opening a position for an AC guy in a few days. Keep it on the hush-hush, man. Don't go telling everybody. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. A job opening like this one only comes once every 50 years. Someone has to die or retire for that to happen. Getting hired would be like hitting a lottery. Thanks, man, but I'm not interested. I have other irons in the fire right now. It's a union outfit. Medical and dental benefits. Monthly production bonuses. The problem with self-promulgators was that, believing not in the wisdom of editors, most of them acted as their own editors. And you know what they say, if you're editing yourself, you've got a fucking fool for an editor. Reading the classics should be a prerequisite for all writers before even attempted to put pen to paper for the first time, he'd always say. And always carry with you a pocket-sized notebook and pen. You never know when inspiration will strike. Kerouac did this with his poetry. I'm thinking specifically of Mexico City blues here, jotting down his impressions of things as he came across them. He had me there. Words, the devious sons of bitches, had a way of sneaking up on me, like when I was driving along the 10 freeway, for instance, or sitting in the throne mid-morning dropping a deuce. Never did they show up while I was laying around at home watching the soccer game, or worse, while I was sitting before the goddamn keyboard. Thanks for the heads up, Manny. I'll be seeing you around the campfire, I said, and hung up the phone. End. So you've had a little sample of the prose from the story, and you can see a lot of what's what's going on. But here's a, here's a synopsis to kind of help us orient to the essentially the overall story. So Pepe is laid off from his job as an air conditioning installer. But though he chooses to see it as an opportunity to pursue his writing, he really struggles. And when his unemployment benefits are cut off, he must decide whether to give up his dream of being a writer or take a job that offers him no f- fulfillment to support himself and his children. Oh, it sound familiar to a lot of those writers out there. I, bet. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. And it's... Um, Right. I mean, half of writing is the mind game. I think more than half. And so these kinds of struggles that writers deal with in life, well, they're naturally, you know, at times going to come out in our stories. Right. And that, yeah, that it's just, it's heart wrenching. And right. That's what we want in a good story. We want to be touched and, and feel certain emotions. So when we think about the, when you think about Rochelle, the, the submission and the synopsis, what are the things that are really working? Well, the first, the, 
the first thing that stood out to me is not necessarily the most, you know, for everybody, but I loved the specificity and the details Mm -hmm. and the characterization and how they set up the character arc and the global story. I loved how, you know, instead of him saying, you know, my pants, he said, butt huggers (laughs) and, 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 but just kept it at butt huggers, not just, not my butt hugging cargoes with the six pockets that had my keys and my, you know, just butt huggers. That that's all he needed to say. And I got a picture of the room. I got a picture of the guy. I got a, I got a feeling of of you know his sort of um, feeling like you know he's kind of stuck at home and he doesn't know what to do. It was it, those specificity and those little details. I I really appreciate. Um, also, I I added a lot of stories. Uh, where I don't get an inciting incident in the first chapter. And this story had the inciting incident in the first chapter. Um, We see the hero um, of the story in his regular world, and then he gets the call from his friend about the job, which is his call to adventure, I'm assuming. We don't know a lot about the story, but I'm assuming that's his call to adventure. And he refuses the call, which is right there with the hero's journey. So um, I thought that worked well, and um, you had a couple of ideas, I think, too. Yeah, I really like the the voice, the overall voice, of, yeah. I think, of the the piece, and that we're we get, as you said, we get a really clear view of Pepe, our our main character, and. That, and his voice is strong as well, and and I think it's enjoyable, right? It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's fun. It's funny. We're dealing with a you know a tough, really gut wrenching, emotional stuff, but we also have this kind of light heartedness that makes it easier to take, right? Like a spoonful of sugar with our yeah, medicine. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. So I think that that's, you know, that those are great things to include in a story, especially where you have a character driven novel dealing with kind of hard stuff. Yeah. And and in this, I really had it was it wasn't until the second time that I read through it that I thought, well, you know, this this could be a little different here. But but when I was reading through it the first time I was there, I was. I could see the guy, I could see his sofa, even though he didn't tell me it was a sofa. I already had the picture of the plaid sofa and I already knew there was an ashtray there. And I, mean, I don't know, I just thought he did such a great job. And, and part of that was, like you said, the voice, not just the narrator, but of the character as well. So, and, and I, could, I got the sense that there was some distance between the narrator and the, the, story, the protagonist. So that was interesting. Um, and in this short um, ch- chapter, we see some great ideas for some overall storytelling. Yeah, so let's talk about if we're looking at the overall story, and I you know, gave that little synopsis that kind of sets up the main conflict in the story that, that the protagonist faces. Uh, what kind of story do we have here? Because you know, even though we don't, you know, we're not talking about an action story. We don't have a thriller. Um, we're not in a crime story. So 
what kind of story do we are we looking at in this instance we have one that's character driven but we can still identify it well i always think so when i first read this i thought well god he's struggling with self-esteem mm-hmm. and that that quickly pointed me to performance or status and i was thinking about performance and i thought well, one of the primary things about performance is that you have to have that big event in the end. What are they working toward? Mm-hmm. Uh, if this was a going to be a story about the guy's success rather than his compromise, then there might be a big event. There might be a, a writing award or ceremony or something. Um, but but I, I my. The suspicion is that there there's not a performance piece here. So then I started looking at status, and I'm a big status story fan, and because my stories are always status, I start to read status story into almost every story. But no. what, <laughs> what I saw in this one was um, the protagonist's um, attempt to rise in social standing, which is what he defines as a rise in social standing, which would be, I'm going to be a writer, not a blue collar worker. All right. I'm done with air conditioning. I'm a writer. Um, maybe he's looking for respect in the community. Maybe he's looking for self-respect, but, um, he defined success and he defined failure, success being the writer, failure being the air conditioning guy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, selling out would be to take that air conditioning job, right? Because it would mean he's giving up on his dream. And and that's pretty much the global values um, between success, failure, selling out puts me back in a status story. What were you thinking? Does that seem like a... Yeah. 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 And to me, specifically, you know, in the realm of status, we have different you know, different, essentially different subgenres within that category. And we're looking at plots of fortune here, you know, and rising and falling. And as you say, success, according to the protagonist's definition, and that definition might be adopted from their culture, or it might be, you know, something that that's more individual and, for Pepe, it feels individual, and he starts out in a disadvantaged place. So it's not like he's already, say, you know, he's already a town councilman and he wants to run for state representative or something right. like that. Right. It's he's starting out in a place where he's unhappy and he doesn't feel... He doesn't feel successful. And so when we're dealing with a, pro- a protagonist who's kind of in a disadvantaged place and he attempts to improve his lot in life and then it doesn't work out, then I think that's the kind of story that we're dealing with. And so status stories, again, deal with right an attempt to improve your lot in life and the price that you have to pay to do so. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I've got a strong sense that that's where he is with this story. And I wish we had him on the phone so we could discuss that, but I'd probably talk his ear off for several hours. <laughs> we could talk for a long time. Now, he did give us some clues about he wants to include some 
some social issues, you know, the Mm -hmm. things about single parenting and, and, you know, the financial system as it's set up and Mm self-discovery and these kinds of issues, I think, naturally lend themselves to not only an internal genre, but but status specifically because of the, you know, where do you see yourself in terms of success or failure or worse than failure is selling out, right? Right, right. So when we're looking at this, a story like this, where it's more internal, it's about the character's internal change, even mm-hmm. though we have events that are driving the internal change, we don't want to spend all our time in the mind of the protagonist, even though that might be a really interesting place to hang out. Right, right. So we want to, and as, um, you know, from the quote, what you were saying is, right, we still need to have events and dramatize what's happening to the protagonist and how those external events are driving him. Right. And, and here's where I get really excited about this particular story, because, uh, first of all, I think this, this writer, again, because of the voice and the specificity gave us such a rich world Mm -hmm. that, um, with such little detail that I can already start to see and feel that sort of Kubler-Ross um, stages of grief plot, which right. which is kind of feels like the opposite of the hero's journey, but it all follows along the hero's journey just with the um, a negative in the end instead of a positive. But um, I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that or you want me to? Sure. Uh, okay. Either way, we can. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking um, that if you can dramatize each of those events, if you can create the, the, the feelings, the shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, deliberation, choice, integration, that sounds like a lot, but you can break that down one by one, even scene, you know, one scene is shock, one scene is denial. One scene is anger or, you know, they can, uh, somebody can move back and forth, but he already gave us a, a map of these scenes for, for me. Uh, the shock was for me, the, he's laid off. Mm-hmm. Um, he could dramatize that up a little bit more. I want to, I'd love to see the ir- irony of that layoff. You know, the guy comes in and says, well, you know, Pepe, I'm so sorry, man. He maybe even hands him a tissue. I, I know this is going to be hard on you. I know you needed the job and, you know, on and on. And, and Pepe's like, no, nah, man, I'm out of here. Yeah. Right. He's, he's, he's ready to be a writer. And, um, you know, so when uh, I think you and Ann Hawley talked about, you know, when they, the reader expects a zig, you zag. <laughs> so the reader would expect him to be sad about this layoff. And instead he's like, whoa, I'm going to go live the dream. Yeah. Um, can I pause you right there just ahead. for one sec? Cause I want to provide a little bit of context for the, because right. The Kubler-Ross is a, is a grief process, right? Right. That, so it's describing the, like 
what people go through when they're processing grief. But it connects to story because stories are about change. And ultimately, processing grief is about really it's metabolizing change or processing change. And so, like you said, when we have an ordinary world with Pepe going off to install air conditioners and then if we saw that scene, right, that would be, right. it's the, it's the inciting incident. It's the call to adventure, but we, in the context of an, of a character driven story, sometimes it's cool to think about it in this different way that applies the same way, but feels like a better fit. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and changes, even if it's positive. I mean, I don't, I don't get the sense that this story is at all going to go positive. But, right. um, yeah, even an, even positive change, you go through some of those, um, most, some, a lot of those stages of grief. So I like to put the Kubler-Ross terminology uh, alongside the hero's journey and then my break it down from my beginning, middle, and end, mm -hmm. just to make sure, hey, does this pretty much line up? And and usually it does. Usually it does. And, and I don't know. I love that sort of thing. But I'm a story grid nerd, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no judgment here, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what's interesting about this story and why I felt like I, I was really blessed in a way to get this story was because this story had me step out of the story grid mindset and think about story in a different way mm -hmm. and think about it in ter with different language mm -hmm. and approach. And um, I, I, don't know, I felt this story helped me grow a little bit as an editor. So thank you. Thank you for the writer. And yeah. But awesome. so do you yeah. want to talk about how to um, dramatize some of those Kubler-Ross? Yeah, I mean, and we can even go, yeah, go through those steps um, like you were like you were doing before I interrupted you. <laughs> you know, it, it, I forget. I, so I get my technology. Yeah, we can go it. back to like sh shock, right? So the shock, like Pepe is going along. He's in air conditioning installer to make that distinction for what happens later and so if you wanted to show the shock then you would show the event that causes that and you had the great idea of dramatizing the layoff and having that occur on stage and right. then, yeah, and then so the next stage is denial. And how would you, how might he demonstrate that? Well, denial is a tough one because, you know, we're all going to do it. And we don't even know we're in denial, right? right. But um, the denial, I think, would be the, wait a minute, this is fine. I can do, this is great, actually. This layoff thing is not a problem, even though I have child support and a mortgage to pay. I'm going to be a writer. I've never written anything except for on Home Depot receipts, but I'm going to be a writer now, full time. Um, so we start to like this guy through this denial, right? He's going to make lemonade out of lemons. And so we attach to this guy through 
partially through his denial, which I think is another interesting kind of innovation on denial there. But um, so dramatizing the um, dramatizing his maybe leaving from that playoff, his new plan or getting excited and setting up his office or, um, you know, talking to his friend, the Facebook poet about how he's going to do this writing thing and he's excited or. Yeah. Yeah. And having, I think having uh, Manny, the Facebook poet guy, have him try to take the wind out of his sails a little bit, you know, dude, (laughs) let me tell you about reality. Yeah. And Pepe just being like, oh, (laughs) no, I, I've got this. I've got it. It's all good. Yeah. And that Facebook poet would be a great foil through the whole writing process. He's a, he's a great uh, uh, symbol of maybe the guy who's slacking off smoking pot. Uh, Who knows? I don't know how that guy would be supporting himself, but uh, (laughs) it would be interesting to see what, uh, what one of the alternatives are for um, our protagonist. Right. Right. So, so after he goes through denial, then we slide into anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you and I know something about this story that the, that your listeners aren't going to know. And can we mention what's in the next scene? Yeah, I think because we want to, okay, okay. we want to, so it's instructive. He, okay. So in the next scene, he gets a letter saying that his, um, uh, unemployment checks have been cut off. Yeah. He's not going to, it's not going to be extended. So I, that's an excellent opportunity for anger and anger at the system, anger at himself. Um, he oh. could actually get that, be opening that letter when he's in line at Western Union to pay his child support Oof. checks, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's what sets off um, why we know he thinks it's an unnecessary social obligation or um, how he interacts with other people, you know? the average people in line or how he treats the, the clerk mm-hmm. tells us a lot about his character. Um, yeah. Yeah. And where he's at in the journey overall. Yeah. I think that's an interesting, that would be a great way to, to just demonstrate. And, and I want to say too, right. We're kind of spitballing here a little bit. Um, not really, metaphorically of course (laughs) um but these are not you know these are not like the best ideas and they're not like the only ideas like these are just possibilities that we're kind of tossing out and discussing the way that you might you know an author might with an editor or with a fellow writer and just kind of working through how do I, how am I going to show this internal change, the slow internal change with external events? Right. It's a big challenge. That's not level one writing. That's right. not level two writing. That's, you know, when you can do that, that's, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after the anger, comes Wait. right oh yeah Bar- bargaining, bargaining is uh, yeah and you had a good idea for that one so 
there's this conversation with Manny at King Taco and <laughs> I love King Taco. I, I just I I'm not familiar with King Taco, but I want to be just I just love the name. So that we're you know, this is not a Mm, what am I trying to say that that the job is the job so right in this in the submission the part that you heard Manny's offering to tell Pepe about a job opportunity and of course Pepe says no 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 well now he's desperate and he wants the job well unfortunately it's not about it's not a, an air conditioning installing job. It's an air conditioning troubleshooting job. And that's a very different thing. And it's, it's noted that, right, those aren't his skills and he's going to have to kind of wing it. And Manny's like, just do it. Just do what I tell you. Just do what I tell you. It's going to be fine. So that to me feels like bargaining kind of, right. okay, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll just do these things. I'll study up on YouTube and it's all going to be fine. It'll be fine. Right. I'll just do this. It'll be fine. Right. And who knows, maybe he's just doing it long enough until he can save up some money and quit again so he can write. Right. This is just yeah. temporary. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. do this for a little while and then I'm out of here. Yeah. So if that doesn't work out, what then happens next? Oh boy. The writer's life. No, <laughs> uh, depression. Right. And, um, you know, I was thinking in depression, if, if I were this guy going to what I believed was a sellout job, mm-hmm. um, and, realizing that, uh, well, gosh, not only is this a sellout job, but I'm not even competent for it, Mm -hmm. um, might be a great way to uh, externalize depression when he's in the job, he is incompetent, he's struggling, he thought it would be, you know, probably something easy. um, And it's actually harder than he expected. Mm -hmm. This sucks. Yeah. And maybe somebody's looking on while he's not feeling competent. And isn't that the worst yeah. feeling? Like yeah. somebody's yeah. looking over your shoulder and yeah, it's just, oh. It's the guy who's really good at it. The guy who has everything that you wanted. Maybe he writes on the side. Oh, he has, sure. maybe he has some writing podcast or something, just a <laughs> fancy pants or, or, you know, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I mean, but the guy could really, the guy that's watching could really embody like everything this guy hates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Or maybe he's working on, he's troubleshooting the air conditioning unit for a big time writer. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that's just going to be demoralizing. Yeah. Yeah. And that moment of demoralization <laughs> will lead to. Right. It's Still, essentially a point of no return that leads right. to. Well, you've got the crisis, which is the, in Kubler-Ross, oh, yeah. it's deliberation. Deliberation. So what's my best bad choice in this particular story? Yeah. It's not irreconcilable goods. It's what's my best bad choice here? 
Yeah. Am I gonna am I gonna sell out and take this air conditioning job? Am I gonna figure out a way to make this work? Am I gonna quit? Am I going to um, you know to do odd jobs on the side until I can get this writing career going? Even though, gosh, I, I was six months laid off and didn't write anything. Um, Ooh, yeah. I mean, that's a gosh. That puts me back. The real Kubler Ross journey would put, then put me back to depression. And then, <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, he's got a he's got a best bad choice. What's he gonna do? Yeah, what is he gonna do? And then, so as he's facing that, you know, he has the question, and then he has to answer it. So he has to make a choice. So, what's a way that he might that you might dramatize? making the decision so that it's not just we're not just in his head and he says oh okay I'm gonna I'm gonna go with this job that I don't love how can we how could we show that well I think it depends on on uh, where where the writer is with with this particular story like he did mention that he wanted this to be a meditation on single parenting mm-hmm. and capitalism. So you could talk about something specifically in the money realm. You could talk about that, you know, something happens where he doesn't have money or, you know, that next paycheck is critical and you see it happening. They're coming to turn off the bills or something. Or or his he's with his kid and he has to tell his kid he can't buy him the shoes he needs mm-hmm. or um, the kid is like, well, remember my birthday's next week. And, um, but when I first thought about this, I was thinking about, um, how it's really a critical choice as the stories we see it now, mm-hmm. uh, the choice between writing, which was success right. and the AC job failure selling out. Mm-hmm. So if there was a way to dramatize that writing versus air conditioning and, um, like he's say he's at a he's finally gotten the guts he's going to go to this performance event he's going to read his first five pages to an uh, a a group of people that the Facebook poet has set up or yeah. um, and he knows there's a literary critic in the audience or I mean this is kind of kind of a big deal to him and he, uh, what he sees is a step to success in writing and then he gets a call his cell phone rings just before he goes on stage and the ac guy says oh we got a leak you got to get over here right now it's an you know it's an emergency and he has to make that choice mm-hmm. okay am i going to get on stage or i'm going to keep my job yeah yeah and in this case we're assuming that that choice is um that he's going to go and take the ac job he take yeah yeah it seems like that's pretty clear. That's the the way it's moving. And again, this the idea of failure, success, selling out, like all of the compromise, like or let me say them in the correct order so that it doesn't sound so that they're not all mixed up. That it's success is right the positive value that you get in a status story. And that's right, that's what that's what the protagonists want. They want success. Whatever their definition of success is, it might not be mine, not, might not be yours, but it's theirs. So then the contrary value to success would be compromise. And again, that's compromise as the protagonist defines it. 
and other people you might have other characters in the story you know express other ideas about what compromise is but it's really important that we kind of that we see that from the protagonist's point of view and then we have failure and then beyond failure is selling out like it's a it's failure would be a, a mercy so to speak right. um, like because it's similar to that idea of a fate worse than death or that death would be a mercy it's beyond failure and yeah. so and again that's because because I want to say that if a writer has to take a day job that is not selling out right, um, right. but in this story this particular character can right you know, could see it that way. Right. So Can I, I give it, go ahead. Yeah. I was okay. going to give a quick example of, sure. of that. I'm doing the memoirs of a geisha study, study guide. Yeah. And she starts out, the protagonist is, a, is sold into slavery at the age of seven or nine. And um, her goal in life, she decides at age 12 is going to be to obtain the affections of a married man. That's her big goal as a slave. And, and we totally get a buy-in uh, with why that's her goal. He's the only man who's ever been kind to her. He buys her a snow cone. Um, he represents all that, is, that, is, that she sees as status, um, the missing father that she had. We get, you get the reader's buy-in on that. But ultimately, what she saw as success was gaining the affections of a married man. And what she saw as failure was getting the job, the big job of having a rich man um, be her, her, I don't know, they call them Donna's in uh, the, the geishas call them Donna's, but we would call them sugar daddies here. Uh -huh. um, so uh, her idea of selling out was to get this Donna, but that was the idea that the society had of her success. And her idea of success was to gain the affections of this married man. And that was society's idea of her ultimate failure. Right. So it's all about what the protagonist thinks is success, not what the reader thinks is success. Because you can get our buy-in on just about anything. Right. If, uh, if you dramatize it and you show us why it's important to that particular character. So, And yeah. I think the story can do that really well. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So then we're coming to the end of the Kubler-Ross change slash grief process. And we're, we're moving into what we would call integration is what we call it or is what Kubler-Ross called. But right, that it's sometimes that's successful and sometimes it's not. So it can be a sort of resignation and the idea that I had for this, like one way that you could show Pepe's resignation would be, so there's a lovely scene that you're not, um, that you haven't heard about where Pepe is looking through, he's gotten this job and he's looking through the desk of the guy who had it. And these jobs at this place are the, you know, this is again, this is that great dichotomy of like or the contrast between like what we think of as success these jobs at this particular place are once in a lifetime jobs like when you get in you stay for life 
And the guy who was there before him and the reason why Pepe has an opportunity is because the man who came before died. And so he's looking at the desk with all the things that the man left behind. And it's kind of a, like, wow, that's a really, it's a touching moment. And if you wanted to dramatize Pepe's sort of resignation to his fate of working in this job and have it be ultimately, you know, to him, it feels like selling out, then he would be, you know, like initially, right, when he was, um, when he was bargaining, okay, I'll take the job, but I'm not gonna, I'm not staying. I'm just gonna leave this dude's stuff here. I'm not moving my stuff in. I'm not touching anything. This is not my place. It's temporary. But then to show the integration, you could show him moving into the space and kind of accepting, you know, like accepting that this is his lot in life. And it's not a happy, fun. No, we'll weep for the guy. We will weep for that guy. But that doesn't mean it's not an excellent story. Right. Right. Yeah. Like the, you know, like you, you could totally pull off King Taco and all, you know, like the humor and that and still have this really kind of moving ending by using those external events to show the change that's happened yeah. in the protagonist. Yeah, I'm excited for this story. I, I think that it can, I, I think that this particular author has a lot of gifts and could really, uh, once the internal is externalized in, into action, this could just could really be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've been on a journey ourselves. It's yeah, right. It's <laughs> hucking it through. Right. So, okay. So let's say you don't, you know, like, let's say you have a, a thriller and you're, so you've got a lot of external events. How does this apply to you? Well, for most stories, even though the primary moving, you know, the primary change is happening on the outside, it still changes the protagonist on the inside. And so it's still important if you have an internal genre to demonstrate how the external events are changing the character from the beginning of the story through the end. And you can still, you know, you can use that, that, that same construct of the Kubler-Ross grief process to show your characters change. So what I want you to do for the editorial mission this week is to look at the internal change that your protagonist goes through and test it against those the Kubler-Ross stages of grief or essentially, you know, change metabolism. See if you're missing anything and how you can really dramatize that externally. Now, if you have a lot of great external events and you're not sure how to have 
your character change internally, then look at, you know, look at those events and how would someone like your character react to those events? Like what would that cause them to do? And then again, you've got, you're showing that change, that reaction through what they do rather than their thoughts. And it's not that you can't have thoughts. We do want internal reactions, but we want to see those externalized or dramatized because that then we know like we can see it you're not just telling us we're experiencing it do you have anything to add to that I just kind of no I went that, on and just, on there. that was great I think that that uh by the time I got to that advice I had already been writing for 20 years so if somebody can do that wow Good, great. I mean, it's excellent advice. Yeah, it's not. um, None of this is easy. But if you're listening to the podcast, and you went through all of those stages of grief with us, then I think you're in it for the long haul. (laughs) And, uh, and I want you to give it a try. So Uh, Just a reminder that if you didn't get all that down, if you can't remember all of that, you can go and check out the show notes at writership.com slash episodes. And while you're there, you can sign up to have those editorial missions delivered right to your inbox. And remember, the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukrell from the Author Marketing Club. Jim just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. We all know that books with more high-quality reviews sell more copies. HappyBookReviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make your book happy with reviews. Check out the options at www.HappyBookReviews.com because nobody likes a sad book. You can make your book happy with reviews. And Jim Kukrell and the Author Marketing Club cover hosting and technical support for the show, but our Patreon crew supports our time and preparation. We have a new reward for the quartermaster's level, and that is the Writership Book Club, where every month I'll choose a book from your suggestions. I'll read it and then analyze it the way I would for a story grid diagnostic. So we're going through different genres each month. And in December, we're tackling crime stories. So for more information about the book club and other ways to support the podcast through Patreon, visit patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support, you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher, for which we'll be very grateful. If you want to have your five pages reviewed, please visit writership.com submissions. My big thanks and deep gratitude to Rochelle Ramirez for joining me today. Thank you. And thank you to Jose for um, submitting his story. That was pretty brave. Yes, thank you. Okay, that's it for episode 121. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.